Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we continue our investigation into the maritime history of Scotland with a chat with Ron Niche. Ron is a remarkable man with many stories to tell. Born and bred in Leith, he served his apprenticeship as a ship loftsman in the Henry Robb shipyard in Leith. When it closed in 1984, Ron worked all over the world, but always retained his love for ships and the sea and never forgot where he came from. Ron has worked on more than 40 new-build vessels, ranging from a 58-foot aluminium fishing boat to 65,000-ton aircraft carriers. He has experience of salvage tugs, survey vessels, oil support ships, heavy lift barges, firefighting tugs, LNG carriers, roll-on, roll-off ferries, ships for the Ministry of Defence, including oceanographic survey vessels and boom defence vessels, Canadian Coast Guard vessels, steel hulls and aluminium superstructures. In the past few years, Ron has dedicated himself to writing a history of the ships built in Leith, Two volumes of a planned four-volume series have already been published, and they are a testimony to the skill of the men who built the ships and to the many men and women who may have sailed or served on them. Many of you may be unaware of the part played by the shipbuilders of Leith in the UK's maritime history. This port was once Scotland's main port with many firsts to its name. In fact, Leith had begun building ships 400 years before the great shipyards of the Clyde, and these Leith vessels reached all corners of the globe, touching many people's lives. It's a story of global economic change, industrial change, military endeavour and disaster, wealth and poverty, innovation, and above all, brutally hard work. Do sit back and listen to Ron tell us all about it. I doubt that many of you will ever have heard from the mouth of a trained loftsman before, let alone one from Leith. I certainly hadn't before I met Ron. And now I want to know everything I can about his fascinating career. So here is Ron, a living piece of history. Ron, thank you so much for talking to me today. Sam, it's an absolute pleasure. Now I've had a, I've had a wonderful morning reading your your book about these Leith shipbuilders, um, and I just want to start off for people who are listening to the podcast who don't know where Leith is. Can you give them some kind of sense of geography, please? <laughs> it's actually it's a strange it's a strange one because Leith used to be a, a port on its own, 
until it was taken over by Edinburgh in 1920. So it's actually the official port of Edinburgh, where the Britannia is based now. That'll give people, which is Edinburgh's capital of Scotland, of course. Um, and Leaf, we, we like to say that Leaf is the capital of Edinburgh. <laughs> That's very good. So you're you're um you're you're flying the flag for the East Coast maritime history of Scotland. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a strange one because I I actually got into the internet many many years ago when I was working in America and the internet was just starting. I was working at Boeing and I was being shown how to use the internet. So your curiosity gets the better of you, and you know, being a shipbuilder. You're always looking for old ships and stuff, you know, ship names, whatever. So I started typing in ship names, you know, as an exercise, and I started getting a lot of information. It was all the Clyde or um, the Tyne, Newcastle, all all the big shipbuilding centres, Harlan and Wolf. I thought, where's the stuff from the East Coast? You know, Aberdeen, Dundee, Leith. And then slowly but surely over a period of time, I started finding little bits and pieces. But even then, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, well, a lot of this is, some of this is just rubbish. So I eventually said, um, me being me, I said, you know, somebody needs to get this stuff all sorted and get it together. And it never happened, obviously, but over a period of time, um, it was Joe Bloggs that decided to put it all together. Yeah, well, very well done. Let's start with a little bit about your experience because, um, do you know, let's start with what is a loftsman? Oh, that's a very good question, Sam. Because <laughs> you are a loftsman. I'm, I'm so a tell loft- us about yes, being a loftsman. I'm probably one of, the, one of the very few loftsmen left alive. Um, certainly one of the few loftsmen left still work, active and working in the industry. Although they don't have loftsmen nowadays. Um, we were overtaken by computers. The loftsman was the guy who actually defined the naval architect's scantling lines and drawings and offsets, um, reproducing them full size on a loft floor, defining the shape of the vessel, and then flattening the vessel shape, and then templating it so it could all be built to, uh, brought back together. And then the loft actually controlled the dimension the dimensional build of the vessel as well. So we were involved in planning. I think when I, when I speak to youngsters nowadays and, and as their eyes glaze over when I say I'm a loftsman, I, I say to them, it's kind of like we were the human computers. We provided all the, the data so that the ship could be built on the slipway. And uh, it was a, a huge, um, hugely involved job that every single bit of steel on a ship was had to be lofted so you had so that had to be drawn full size yeah. let's just go back to your second we draw it full size it used to be done full size and then it went 10th scale and then it went computerized obviously um and they decided in their wisdom that they didn't need loftsmen anymore I speak to old ship, but people that know about shipbuilding nowadays, and they say the worst thing we ever did was do away with lofting, do away with loftsman. Yeah. You started as an apprentice, but then you hoped to become a journeyman loftsman. So, what's the difference between an apprentice and a journeyman? Well, an appre- you become a journeyman after you've done your apprenticeship. 
you know. Um, you have to you have to have passed your exams. You have to have stayed there for the length of time. Uh, and then you had to go through the initiation ceremonies, etc. Um, which will not go on to here. There might be family people listening. I'm going to come back. It was and a, ship, you it was a, it was a shipyard, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and and then then you were given your you were given your journeyman papers, basically. The company recognised you as a tradesman, qualified tradesman, and more importantly, you got paid as a qualified tradesman. Hmm. Okay. So how old were you when that happened? I was 21, uh, not, I was 20, 21. It's a long time ago now, Sam, you know? Yeah. I finished my time, 1971. No, that's the started. Finished in 75. I was 20 years old. Wow, wow. And you write with a great deal of pride, actually, about, about the business which you've been a part of. And there's a wonderful bit at the beginning when you say that shipbuilding in its purest form is an art. It's, it, Tell us a bit more about that. It really is, and it's lofting. I, I, I don't know. I looked at it. I done a bit of family research as well. You know, trying to get to that the bottom of this. Uh, why I go? Why I was interested in shipbuilding? And I, I can tra- I can trace my I can trace my family name back to um, 16th century Persia uh, to 1622. In fact. And there was a few battles before then with the McNabs and the Nishis, but um, and they were mostly land dwellers, you know. They were plough ploughmen in Perthshire, and then they came down to Fife, worked in the, the linen mills in Fife as foremen uh, and overseers. And then my my grandfather on my dad's side, he worked in he moved to Leith. He worked in Leith and um, as a sailmaker. And then I found that my, my older half brother, he was he started as a shipwright as well that I never even knew about. You know, he worked in Leith as a shipwright, and we we were always close to the water. The water was only a hundred yards from us anyway. You know, and it was just one. That I I still remember it to this day. I also, I, t- I need to, I have to tell you a funny story, Sam. And it sound, it could it might be a bit uh, un PC nowadays, but it's how I ended up in the shipyards and. The street that I lived in, there was a, there was a few beautiful girls, you know. And you're just getting at that age, you begin to notice the other, the other fair sex. And there was this this young girl, and she was going out with this guy who drove a, an E-type Jag, a white E-type Jag. Now, very few people even had cars in these days. I made it my I made it my policy to find out what that guy did, and I found out that he was a, a pipeline welder. Now, well, the pipeline oil, the North Sea oil boom was just the begin, just beginning, and they were beginning to lay the pipelines on the main, on the mainland, and they were getting paid mega money, absolute mega money, and I said to myself there and then, I said, "That's for me. That's what I'm going to do." <laughs> and the only place that done electric welding like that was the shipyards. So I went into the shipyard with this idea of being an electric welder. I'd, I was very good at it, and I'd done it for about two months. I thought, oh, no, I ain't going to do this anymore. And I was actually, I was picked out as the best apprentice. And, you know, they asked me if I wanted to go up the loft and serve my apprenticeship as a loftsman. And I went up there. It was was winter time. They they weren't silly. You know, it was winter time. I went up there. It was nice and warm. It was big. Nice and warm, as I said. And uh, it looked really interesting what the guys were doing. And and I I was sold on it. So 
and and the ships were all around you. You know, there was all these beautiful models, uh, the builders' models in glass cases. It was like a it was like a wonderland to a sixteen year old kid, wander around looking at all this. And you were working in timber. I'd got away from the smelly hot uh, welding. I thought this is this is brilliant. You know, and and if mm. I've I've continued like all, all, I've I realised how fortunate I've been, you know. Yeah, because you said it's you know it's not it is an art form and and yes science is involved in shipbuilding but it has nothing to do with the emotion of building a ship. I love that idea. No, it's that's I mean I've worked in lots of other industries and you know aircraft designing parts for cars even in nuclear industry. There is there's no other industry that gives you that feeling when you when you see. The accomplishment when you've you've worked on a project and you see that ship going down into the water, and it's another, it's a strange thing because you follow the you follow the life of that ship with great interest, at least I do, and a lot of other people do as well. And there's there's a tangible. I mean, I remember very very briefly working on a ship called the the, the MV Hero when I first started in the shipyards, and she sunk in the North Sea. <clears throat> Where one of the crewmen lost her life, and I remember, you know, there was a there was a real sense of loss. We, we were still the shipyard was still open at the time, and it made me realise as well that what we participated in, what we built, people people's lives depended on it. So there was never it was never just a job for me. It was never never just a case of, oh, that's close enough. That'll do. You know that's and that that's just knowing a loftsman's vocabulary anyway, because we were the we were the kings of the shipyard. You know, if you told somebody mm. to move something or do something, they respected the fact that you actually knew what you were talking about, and they done it. You know, so there was no argument, no question about it. It, it was done. Yeah, all encompassing. Um, somebody once wrote that yeah, you needed a like a three D C and I inside your head. Which I thought was was quite good, you know. I definitely don't have one of them, so I wouldn't have been able to do that job. I would have been one of the people outside doing the dirty and dangerous work. I mean, let, let's let's talk I a little bit been, about. I would, re- I would have been helping you, Sam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if anyone let me anywhere near the the ship in the first place. Um, what what do you yeah? Let's just talk briefly about the reality of shipbuilding before we go into just you know telling stories about it. It, it was it was a rough it was a rough dangerous job. There was no health and safety at the time. Um, I, in fact, when I started in the loft, it was only 18 months after the foreman loftsman there had been killed in an accident in the shipyard. Um, I seen two people die in the shipyard while I was there. One was an apprentice, same age as me. Um, he was married with kids, a couple of kids. It was a tough, tough existence, you know, um, but it, it it also and I always I always had this this feeling that well it was it was proven to be true once I moved on that you could be trained in a shipyard and you could go outside the shipyard and work in any any industry but you could not come into the shipyard from any industry not initially anyway and do the same job and that was pro that was that was proven. And and the end days of British shipbuilders, you know, they tried to bring in. They're going back to that nowadays. In fact, trying to bring in plumbers, uh, welders, electricians from outside, and expecting them to build a ship. 
It just doesn't work that way. You know, you, yeah, you can do the same job, but you need further training. And um, <clears throat> this, it all added to the... I guess we thought we were kind of special. You know, shipbuilders did think they were special. Is it important, you know, th- thinking about where the shipyard is as well? But you think about how Leith developed over time because it was a very run-down, poor um, place, well, it was, you it know, was, wasn't it? We, 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 used to, we used to say, and pardon my French, we used to say it was a shithole. <laughs> but at least, at least it was our shithole. You know, and, yeah. we, and we tried to improve it. And, and you would never... There was a respect amongst, amongst uh, us growing up you know, that you, that you don't get nowadays, you know, that, that respect, I feel that that respect's gone between a lot of youngsters and slightly older people. Um, but the, the, it was never, I never look back and I never try and write about, I mean, I write novels now about starting and Leith as well and they're, they're certainly no rosy-coloured glasses. You know, I read a lot of mm-hmm. other stuff and people are like, oh, it's how wonderful it. It was never quite, it was never really like that, you know, it was a rough, tough place. In a rough, tough think about it, it was like in the you know the early nineteenth century. I mean, there were slums down oh, by the horrendous. slums down yeah. by the water. Yeah, it was it was a horrendous way of life. You know, really. I mean, I, th- I think at, at that time the the life expectancy in Manchester, which was the big centre of the cotton industry, was someone like twenty seven years old, hmm. between twenty seven and thirty two years old. The life expectancy in Leith might have been thirty five years old. You know that's. Nowadays it's what seventy five, whatever. That's you know that's that's a massive, massive difference. But that went with. We say that that um, that's what helped to make you. I think in my certainly in my case is what helped to make you want to want to better yourself. There's no no two yeah. ways about it. And there was a big change in terms of, of, of charitable missions, the Siemens Mission, Leith Hospital. Um, you know, and people kind of did latch on to the fact that, that the conditions were, were, were not what they could be and to try and help the, the, the poor sailors and, and those who, who had fallen on hard times. There was, there, was mass, there was massive changes happening with um, entrepreneurs and charitable people. But there was also the other side of the coin with the greedy ones. You know, we, we still have this thing about Edinburgh. You know that um, <laughs> the the Edinburgh the Edinburghers used to send their shit down at the water relief, you know, and and they're still they're still giving it to us, uh, arguing over who should pay for the cleanup, the you know ah. leaf. And so that's the problem of being downstream of a major city. Of course, yeah? that's you know because every everybody's you get their sewage. Gardelou in it, and that main that main river, and that little main river was where all the shipyards originally started, and. It's it's amazing, it is, and it's it's not really changed an awful lot when you look at it. There's a lot of uh, five star eateries and wine bars and stuff, but the base. If you once you look behind that 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 frontage, you 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 start noticing that a lot of these buildings have never really changed since the 16th, 17th century. The King, yeah. King's Walk pub, where Mary Queen of Scots landed, it's still the same. It's a very gentrified place. I mean. It's not the place I used to drink in. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. I mean, you talk about how old it is there. It's um, you know, six hundred years or so of, of shipbuilding history that you've got at Leith. Yeah, and it was all it was all it was all done away with when. Uh, I mean, it's very political, obviously, but um, 
it was it was a crime what was what was committed back in this the the late um, early eighties mid eighties between government and industry you know not just in shipbuilding it happened in the mining industry it happened in the steel industry and and I was a young shop steward at the time as well and trying to keep people's jobs going you know and it was impossible but my argument at the time was well what happens when we're turning the country into a service industry you know. Well, we don't make anything. I said, what happens when everybody's got that, every, all the services they need? Now, this pandemic has actually brought it right back in sharp focus. At the start of it, we never had any, we never had any PPE because we don't make anything in this country anymore. We don't even, we don't even, we don't even have the capability to build ship, commercial ships anymore. We're an island. How cuckoo is that? Yeah, and if you think about how much of the you know the mercantile ships in the world were being built here, it's, it's incredible. I mean, we had eighty-seven percent of the market at one time. Eighty-seven percent of you know all, all merchant yeah. ships. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredible. All changed. Um, so, I mean, let's just talk a little bit about about your books and uh, and how you how you went about doing it, and maybe pick out a few of these um, these wonderful wonderful leith built ships because. There, there are some really fantastic names there oh, in maritime it, history, aren't there? It's incredible, and I think what I, going back to this initial searches on the internet and stuff, um, when I, I used to, it did it annoyed me that I could never find much about the leaf chips because I knew there was a lot. Of, I mean, a lot, I know a lot more now, obviously, but even at that time, I knew there was a lot of well-known names that um, were just discounted. Nobody knew about them. Nobody knew about the histories. And uh, I went to see my old gaffer, Jimmy Russell. He was the, he was the foreman Lofts when it took over. And here's a, here's a strange thing about um, Lofton, Sam, that in all the time that Henry Robbs was there in Leith from 1918 to the closure in 1984, there was only ever four, four in number, foreman Loftsman. Four men that became Foreman Lofsman. Now, Jimmy Russell was the last one, and I, I was I was working overseas, and as I said, and I, and I thought, I need to do something about this. So I came back, and I, and I said, oh, I'll, go and, I'll, I'll go and have a word with Jimmy. I went to see him, and I said to him, I'm going to write a book about the, the ship's bill at Leith. And he says, oh, you're full of it. You'll never do that. He said, but what I'll, what I'll give you is, he says, what I'll do is I'll give you this list, uh, the, the ships that were built, you know, the, the actual ships list, the order, a copy of the order book. So I started off with that, Sam. And I said, well, I, I, I can start off, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll start off with a blog and I'll, I'll find out all I can about each ship in chronological order and I'll put it, set it down. And then I realised I was getting I was getting a lot of interest, a lot of people getting in touch with me, contacts, and I said, "My God, I, said, I need more than a blog, you know." I said, "I need to do a website." So I started a website called Lee Shipyards, which grew huge. It, over six or seven years, it grew enormously, and I got so much information and data sent in there. And then the hackers got a hold of it, obviously, you know. So. <laughs> Hard <laughs> luck, hard luck. Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, if you went on the lease shipyards, you were directed. To, it could have been worse. You were directed to a bank in Brazil. So, <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to. I'll close this down. So I closed it down. 
But then, I, obviously, I had intentionally starting a new one up, you know, and I, because I was beginning to, I was beginning to say to myself, now, if I start, I'd actually um, started writing a lot of training manuals for the maritime world. And I looked on that as an apprenticeship for, for uh, because here's another little thing. And I mean, this is going to go public. I don't care. Um, publishing be damned. I am a bit dyslectic. I don't actually know the whole of the alphabet. There's a couple of letters I always miss out. Mm. I'm not going to go through it here, but I always miss it out. So I've always had this this thing, you know, it goes back to my, my days at primary school, this teacher. We never got on, you know. She tried to break me and I tried to break her. Um, <laughs> I think I won. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what you have won? You've won this. You've written written this. This it's a magnificent book, and I love the stories of the ships. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Involved. Um, tell me about the Sirius, built in 1837. The Sirius, again, there was very little known about the Sirius. You know, every time I looked, the only thing I could find was the the American ship that had went the opposite way. Um, I think it was called the... For those of you who don't know, for the, our listeners who don't know, can we just yeah. give, give them a bit, of a, a bit of a background to why the Sirius is important? The, the, Sirius, the Sirius is important because she was the first steamship that ever crossed the Atlantic completely on steam alone. And she was in competition with the the, the Great Eastern because uh, they they set the Great Eastern off a couple of days after Sirius. Do you mean the Great Western? Great Western, sorry, yeah, yeah I keep yeah. getting mixed up with him. That isn't bad. That's King, right. That Kingdom Brunel, you know, he should have had a bit more imagination when he was naming his ships. <laughs> but, uh, For us. So yeah, the Sirius. So the Sirius. The, yeah, the um, Sirius you know, was the, just a small. Crosses the Atlantic. She was a small um, side. Side paddle steamer, a mail packet. She was never built to cross the Atlantic. This um, this Irish company got a hold of her, and they thought, "Well, let's try and let's try and send her across the Atlantic because the ship had went the other way, um, partly on steam, partly on sail." 
And Sirius ended up, I think she was about 16 hours outside of New York and she had to, she ended up having to burn her furniture, start burning the furniture, you know? Uh-huh. So she she got into New York Harbour. Um, it was only a few hours before uh, the Great Western. But it, in terms of uh, achievement, it was miles and miles and miles ahead. She was the first steamship across the Atlantic. And she was built in Leaf. She was built in Mingus. Yeah. So we have a we have a saying that Leaf steamed in first. Yeah, very good. You know? Um and you also have Thomas Morton. I enjoyed this story about you know what, he, what, what in, his involvement was. Tell us about him. He's incredible. He he um he invented the patent slip. Now patent slip for anybody that doesn't know is a means of uh, raising the, the vessel out of the water on a on a slip. Slipway, and it saved the cost of it going into a dry dock. Um, but the problem with that was, it was easily copied, and the Americans in particular, they've still got them. You'll see them around the world. <clears throat> the Americans copied the slip, and Mister Morton even took his case to Parliament, and he spent years and years um, getting very stressed and spending a lot of money trying to win the patent back. Parliament eventually. Uh, Agreed with him a little bit, and they they decreed that he could get. I think it was it was a nominal sum of money. So he had spent all that all that time in his life uh, with this fantastic invention, with very little return for it, which was a bit. Of a How shame. did it work? How did it work? Did it drag them up? Onto it the dragged slip? them up on winches. Yeah, winches on the yeah. slip. You know, so it, it was a cradle that went down. The ship was manoeuvred on top of the cradle, and then the both. When the the cradle was then hauled out the water with the ship on top of it, and I was sent an email not long ago as well, which is, it's amazing to find out. But Morton's also uh, they they built diving bells. Now you can imagine hmm. this is in the days when you know you went down under the water where a pipe was your air supply. <laughs> and, yeah, and they. He gifted he gifted one to the Belgian government and one to the Japanese government, and one of the divers had been in touch with me asking if I knew anything about it. But it was news to me, and I thought, God, this guy. There was a lot more to this guy than you could ever imagine. And then while I was doing some research on on early industry in Leaf, there there was there was a company there in Commercial Street that was building aluminium boats. Hmm. This is in the eighteenth, you know, late eighteenth century, and he was so successful with them, he he, he had to stop taking orders in. He, he got bought out eventually, obviously. Um, that's what happened at shipbuilding. If somebody was somebody was creating a problem, you'd buy them out, you know, and just get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. About like about like the man that invented the, the vehicle, uh, Tucker, I think it was. You know, we'll we'll buy him out and we'll we'll just ruin him. Yeah. But, there's, and Did it, you have links with? Don't you, Karen? Sorry. And I was going to say as well that you, there was a shop, a shop in Leith Walk in uh, the early nineteenth century that you could actually go into called Gibson's. You could buy a, an aeroplane. <laughs> you could buy an aeroplane. It was in kit form, put it together, and you could fly it. Wow. Four hundred and something pound it cost. It's incredible, you know. Leith was a was such a dynamic, diverse place, full of full of hooks, crooks, and bottle merchants. We used to say, you know, 
um, characters. Does that mean you were well placed with with dealing with changes in technology, like you know the changes from timber to iron and then iron to steel? I think I think um, there was there was also the Leith uh, Nautical College opened up, which used to that, that produced uh, more engineers than you could shake a stick at. At the time, you know, every every we're all we're all aware of Star Trek. You know, even the engineer in Star Trek's called Scotty. You know, every mm. every chief engineer on a ship, certainly in, in the steamship days, was a, was a Scotsman. You know, mm. and uh, a lot of them came out of Leith uh, Leith Nautical College that trained them up. And the the fact that um, there was a lot of initial shipbuilding in Leith meant there was a transient workforce of shipwrights. In the in the wooden shipbuilding days, when the tran- when they when they transferred over to steel, I mean even to a set when you when you look at shipbuilding, some some uh, some of the fantastic uh, shipyards they never managed to make the transformation from timber to steel to, to iron and then to steel. But Leith was well positioned by boiler makers as well, who were uh, who were trained on iron, so. Iron ships, and then they, they soon discovered that, you know, Bessemer discovered that a, a cheaper way of making steel. Hence, we had the steel ships. And that was the birth of the, the trade called the plater, which is relatively early. You know, shipwrights, we, we, we used to say that a shipwright was the second oldest profession in the world. And if you have to ask what the oldest profession is, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Um, but with all of this technological change, I mean, I love this this patch of history of Leith and building these um, kind of extraordinarily luxurious sailing barks. Oh, they were they were um, they well, were absolutely incredible. That, yeah, La Belle Sauvage. Now, there's a there's a picture that is some ship. These 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 are. Uh, I'm actually I've got a book on the go about it, Sam. These were actually uh, luxury steam yachts and yeah. They're like super yachts of today. They were, they you know, were super, super yachts. Today we would call them super yachts. Um, they were they were the the epitome of what a wealthy person, what the Rockefellers, the Stuyvesants, these type of people, the oil barn, the the, the railroad barns, the oil barns. That's what they spent their money on. The t- titled royalty they spent their money on a, a luxury steam yacht. And Ramage and Ferguson which was uh, the main shipyard in Leith at the time, happened to build 93 of these beautiful vessels. The other two shipyards built another 10 or 11. So there was more than 100 of these vessels built in Leith, which on, an av- on average, if you, if you, when you work it out, meant that they were the most proficient builders of these uh, vessels in the world even surpassing the Clyde. And and these 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 vessels were, were purchased by the likes of um the Archduke Ferdinand, you know, the, the guy that got that kicked off the First World War. Hmm. And uh Marconi. He he'd had one of them. Um Pulitzer. He had a specially converted ship because his deafness and his blindness. Um so the designers and Ramage and Ferguson built him a vessel that had no corn, no sharp corners on it, and it was all it was <laughs> wow. it was all ramps, you know. Absolutely yeah. amazing, amazing ship, and and she ended up she ended up being. Uh, 
I don't want to give away too much of my steam steam yacht book, you know, because I'm actually I'm actually, I've actually got is uh, a guy called Doctor William Collier who owns um, G L Watson Limited, who are the oldest um, ship design company in the world. Now they, George Lennox Watson, designed a lot of these luxury steam yachts, and five or six of them were built in Leith. So. Dr. Collier's actually looking at my book just now to give me some pointers, you know, how I can trim it mm -hmm. down a bit and, you know, improve it and stuff. So, but they, these these vessels are apart for the apart for probably the Coben Haven, which was the big sail, the big sailing bark. Oh, so that was, was, was the largest sailing bark built. That was the largest sailing ship ever built in the British Isles. Yeah, again in Leith. That's a magnificent. Ship oh, it's as well. a, it's absolutely and 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 the, was it f five masted? I, I can't. Five masted. Um, and she had she had an auxiliary engine as well. Um, five thousand tons. Um, the, the, these vessels were built primarily to take grain from Australia to Europe and vice versa. She unfortunately got she was lost mysteriously lost in nineteen twenty eight. We lost the all hands, you know, because she was a training ship as well, 45 Danish mm. cadets. And not a single trace was ever found. You know, there's, there's a whole load of band pots on the internet and television and that that say, well, well, you know, the bits have been found washed up here. Not a single bit has ever been found off that ship. Mm. No trace whatsoever, you know. And there's, I've, heard, I've had people get in contact with me saying that, she was taken by spaceships, you know. Yeah, she's, <laughs> yeah. she's up there, or she's up the Limpopo River, you know, and all, all kinds of crazy. Um, not, she just disappeared. Another mystery of the sea. Yeah, we'd love to know if anyone knows where the Copenhagen is. Well, <laughs> I, please I, get in touch. I've, I've been asked, Sam, and and I, and, I, and I did say that. Um, you know, if James Cameron and the guys that went searching for the Titanic, if they were to go looking for the Copenhagen. It'd be a bit more difficult. She was, you know, because I don't know exactly where she went down. Um, but if they, if they'd spent the time and the money, perhaps they would be able to find her. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the the real interesting thing about uh, Copenhagen as well, apart from the fact she was a beautiful vessel, she was built twice. Hey. She was built twice. How does that work? Well, the first time she was getting built, she was getting built in the the First World War broke out. So the Admiralty had a look around it, uh, you know, what their assets were. And they seen this 5,000 ton hull getting built and they took her over and they said, no, we'll have her. Hmm. So she was built up to hull stage, launched, and she was taken as an oil hulk for the Admiralty. She was called Black Dragon. She was towed across to uh, Gibraltar and she, she lay in Gibraltar in the mole, in the harbour in Gibraltar for up until about 1963, something like that, before she was scrapped. So if you were ever in Gibraltar between the First World War, and she, <laughs> the First World War in 1960s, you would have seen the Black Dragon in the, in the harbour. That's who, what it was. That was the original hull for the Copenhagen. Amazing. And how did the war, um, you know, well, let's talk about the First World War. How did the First World War, war affect, affect Leith? It affected Leith, in, well, it affected Leith in uh, quite a lot of 
uh, strange ways because ad admirality in these days, um, you know, the, the snobbery around the Royal Navy um, and the admirality at the time meant that they, they looked down the nose at commercial shipbuilders. They didn't think that commercial shipbuilders could build ships. There was five Royal Dockyards and it was Royal Dockyards that built the, the real ships for the Royal Navy at the time the battleships and cruisers and stuff. And that changed slightly with the likes of John Brown's, uh, you know, taking on stuff. But there was only ever, I think there was only two, two ships were built during the war for the, well, apart from tugs, there was a lot of tugs built in Leith during the war, the first war for the Admiralty. But there was no warships built. And a lot of, a lot of them, so... During the First War, uh, shipbuilding was not a it was not a um, a reserved occupation like it was in the Second War. So the vast majority of the men um, signed up, and and we all know what happened when they went to the front. You know they were just fodder for the machine guns, um, and a lot of the a lot of the labour was supplemented by uh, female workforce, um, and. There was a, there was there was great sadness in Leith at the time because there was a whole regiment was decimated in a train crash, Britain's worst real real disaster as well. That was mm. the, the Royal Scots all for Leith. So and and Leith was bombed by zeppelins as well. You know they they had they they went they went through it. They, it's not as if they were untouched. Um, not quite as not quite as badly as. Um, other cities during the, you know, Clyde Bank or that during the Second World War, but mm. they weren't weren't untouched. But the shipbuilding went on, and, and as as the war was going on, there was a mass, there was an even bigger market in repairing ships, you know, because the, the torpedoes weren't quite as deadly as they were in the Second War, so there was a lot of damaged ships that needed repaired, and this is where Leith started to excel, and. Henry Robb used to work for Ramage and Ferguson. He was the production manager at Ramage and Ferguson. And he obviously seen what was going on and thought, hmm, there's, a, there's an opportunity here. And that's when he, he actually branched out in 1918 um, on his own, took half a dozen of the top guys for Ramage and Ferguson, and they created Henry Robb Shipyard. They never had a shipyard to work in, but they managed to, to get a lot of the repair work um, from the war. And one of them was f quite a famous one, was the SS Brussels, whose captain, Fryat, um, there was a big, big stink about the fact that the Germans took him off the ship and they executed him within three days, you know. They gave him a, a Mickey Mouse trial and they said, he, he, because he had been a pain to them, and and basically, this caused a huge stink, a diplomatic stink, because the you know Britain, the, the higher ups in Britain thought it was still a, just wasn't cricket, you know, to, to take somebody out and execute, and yet they were sending thousands to their their death in front of the machine guns, but this wasn't cricket. But he was a brave, brave man. Now that that ship was sunk in uh, in Denmark, and uh, sorry, in Belgium, in Ostend, and. They raised her, and the Belgian government gifted it back to Britain. And the British government says, "Okay, they put a you know a tender for her. anybody willing to take on this job." 
And, and Henry Robb did, took it on, on an open-ended contract. And they done the work in time, done it to a really high standard. Uh, she was turned it from a passenger vessel into, a, I think she ended up a cattle ship. Uh, but it got them noticed, it got the shipyard noticed, you know, that they could take on big, big jobs and repair them to a high quality, high standard. And that was that was the start of Henry Robbs, really. Uh, and then he, he still needed... He actually got um, he got a couple of orders to build ships, but he never had any anywhere to build them, so he built them in the dry dock, and he leased he leased a, a couple of warehouses off of Curry's uh, James Curry, who was part of the Curry line, Leith Allen Hamburg shipping line, and they were actually building um, sub modules sub modular design you know building. Long before, you know, they do it nowadays, but it was the only way they could build things and then put it together in the dry dock. Now, without giving away too many secrets, um, that's exactly the way the aircraft carriers were built. All around the country in modular form, brought together, assembled in Resyth and then floated out. Henry Robb was doing that in 1920. Hmm. You know? Great I'll, story of innovation. I've always said there is no, there's no shortcuts. There, I say, to, I say to young apprentices nowadays. I say, listen, when shipbuilding went from uh, wood to iron to steel, some of the finest mines in the country worked on them. You know, Isambard Kingdom, Brunel, Yarrow, Sir Eric, you, you name it. You know, some of the finest mines in, in the country, engineering, were, were there. Now, if there was any shortcuts, these guys would have. Don't you think these guys would have found them? No shortcuts to quality, to shipbuilding. We we square things off. You know, we make flat-sided vessels that look terrible because they're easier to build because we've not got the tradesmen to do to build them nowadays. We've lost the art. We don't have the people to train them anymore. Mm. There's a massive vacuum. There's a, there's a huge need for skilled people in Britain, not just in the shipbuilding, but in all manufacturing industry. So if you're listening to this, Boris, get your act together, get something done about it. <laughs> That's a great place to finish. Ron, thank you so much for talking to me today. Absolutely superb, Sal. <laughs> Brilliant. That's all for now. Do please catch up on our other Scottish maritime histories. We began this series with an episode on the wrecks of World War II midget submarines at Aberlady Bay in East Lothian. And we shall continue it with the story of Jonas Wiley, a Fife man who made a fortune running guns from Glasgow to the Confederate South during the American Civil War. A little bit of Scotland's hidden history of supporting slavery. Do please follow us wherever you engage on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, wherever it may be. But best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. It does not cost very much, but it supports this podcast. You get four journals a year. You can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. And it supports all of the worthwhile goodness that the Society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserving our maritime past.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.